Welcome to Radford Design Thinkers, a brand new podcast brought to you by Radford University. Program hosts include graduate students in the Design Thinking MFA program, whose intent is to share how design thinking is used to improve meeting outcomes, training, teaching, and general human interaction through connections in psychology and design. With that, we welcome you and hope you enjoy. Megan, and let me be the first to welcome you to Radford Design Thinkers, which is a series centered around furthering the understanding and definition of design thinking. We're excited to get rolling with episode one, but first, I think we should have some quick introductions. I have with me Katie and Nancy, who are my co-hosts and fellow students of mine at Radford University. Hello, everybody. Hi. Nancy, do you, do you want to start with a quick introduction? Sure. Uh, I'm Nancy Bosca, and I'm from the edge of the Rocky Mountains in Calgary, Canada. I'm a college instructor teaching interior decorating and kitchen and bath design with a background in industrial design and drafting. I love my studies. It has been a challenge for me, and my success in the program acknowledges that I'm in the right place at the right time. Katie and Megan and I are passionate about learning, design thinking, and sharing it with you. Hello, everybody. I'm Katie Brobst. I am um, a small business owner in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I also do a lot of art education. Um, this is my second year as a student in this MFA program at Radford, and I'm just fascinated by the whole world of design thinking and how it relates to my life, both in work and outside of work. And last but not least, I'm Megan Williams. I'm a career and technical education secondary instructor in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And I think it's a violation of Michigan code if I don't show you on my hand where I live, because I live in the mid state. <laughs> so I am like right here in the center. Um, so now you know where I'm at. Um, so anyways, I'm joining, um, I joined Nancy in that world of interior design education, um, except I'm educating like nine through 12th graders. Um, so I'm right in the middle of my master's journey and I'm loving every minute of it. So let's have Katie get us started. So why are we here today? Perfect. Okay. So the three of us have recently finished a course called product design with a conscience, which is what sparked the idea to do this design thinking podcast. In that course, we read a few books. One of them was Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And the other was The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. And you don't need to memorize these titles. We're just telling you about them because we're going to, one, link them um, in the comments for your reference. And two, trust me, you are going to hear so much about these books in this series um, so you'll know them by the end. Um, these are the two books that led us to really start thinking about, um, how we think that's the point. That's the premise of both of these, these books. And, you know, it's not news that our brains are very intricate, vast organs in our bodies. And it's the science behind how we think that is so incredibly fascinating. And the more we discussed it, the more we realized uh, we want to share this information with everybody. So that's what brought us together for this podcast. So if you found our podcast, you've probably heard of design thinking in some sort of context. You know, maybe you're, you're in the world of education um, where you've been exposed to the real basic model, which is empathize, ideate, prototype, and test. 
and these are just the broad tenets of the concepts of design thinking um, and just represent a way to quickly kind of market the, the um, term to the masses. And um, there's so much more to it. So that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast to get more information out there about design thinking. Um, and we, we definitely don't know everything. So without sounding you know, too cheesy, this is kind of just as much a learning experience for us as it is for you. So why are we doing this podcast? I could say we're gluttons for punishment, and I've been accused of that many a time, <laughs> doing work outside of class, but that wouldn't be true. This is not part of coursework, but an expression of our passion for our studies. As we explored the ideas in Kahneman books, Fast and Slow Thinking, or Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, in conjunction with the concepts of human-centered design and design thinking, which Norman discusses in his books, there was little connection between these ideas, yet we saw those connections and we wanted to bring those connections together. <clears throat> uh, design thinking is the art of problem solving with humans at the center, understanding our thinking process and why humans think in a particular way in each situation allows us to manage how we think and then adjust or change it as we need to. Connecting the dots of design thinking and fast and slow thinking may transform what design thinking is and redefine what a designer is and should do. So I guess let's get rolling with everything. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, let's start episode one. <laughs> let's get started here. All right. So um, in this episode, we're really trying to introduce kind of the broader topics of what we want to discuss in the series as a whole. Um, and we're going to circle around the ideas that Daniel Kahneman um, goes through when thinking fast and slow. I'm trying to get my book in there. So that's what the, the cover looks like. Um, and we've already mentioned it, obviously, here um, in our first intro. Um, but for those of you who aren't familiar with the book, um, it's really essential for anyone who's going to be working with people. Um, it honestly, it, it is a lot to absorb at first. It's not an easy text. So you have to really be prepared, um, especially if you don't have um, a lot of knowledge in psychology. And I didn't have a lot of knowledge going in. Um, and, and I think that led me to struggle a lot with the first two sections. Um, and I actually stopped reading it because I started pre-reading it in the summer for a course. And then I thought, well, the, my brain is in summer mode. I can't process, <laughs> I can't process this information. So I put it back on the shelf and said, all right, I'm going to restart it when we start the semester. And when I did that, um, it, it, it kind of goes to this, I, the concept of priming that we'll talk about later is I wasn't primed to read it in the summer because I wasn't in my kind of education mindset. But once the semester started, I, I for one, I knew I had to read it. <laughs> um, and I, I kind of just got myself primed to read it. So kind of what I'm saying is stick with it and you might pick it up and then you might put, put it down but pick it back up again later. And I promise you really, you'll understand it once, once you get going, a light bulb's gonna click on, and then you'll really kind of change your perspective on how you're on your day-to-day -day life, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. So just read, just, you know, a little bit about Daniel Kahneman too. Um, he's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and he's author of several books and many, many published papers. Um, thinking fast and slow is, probably has become a pretty big staple in behavioral psychology. Um, and just to read kind of from the book jacket, it says, system one is fast, intuitive, and emotional. System two is slower, more deliberate, and more logical. 
the impact of overconfidence on corporate strategies, the difficulties of predicting what will make us happy in the future, the profound effect of cognitive biases on everything from playing the stock market to planning our next vacation. Each of these can be understood only by knowing how the two systems shape our judgments and decisions. So our brains naturally use fast and slow thinking. It's, this is not something we learn, it's just human biology. In common defines um, system one and two through how we react with our environments. And while we don't you know, require that you read his book to understand our podcast series, I mean, we do recommend it. Uh, system one and system two are going to be discussed often and while we're going to cover both systems, if you're still struggling with just the general concept of what they are, um, take the time to read through at least sections one and two of Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, there's, there's also a number of different podcasts and books out there that summarize um, the entire book um, into, you know, kind of like a, a nice little um, workbook. Um, so you can also uh, grab one of those too. So anyways, what's, what's different about our podcast is that we're going to cover this topic um, and show you how it impacts design thinking as opposed to just summarizing the content. We wanna show you how you can apply this to something in your life. So I think that probably it's a good idea now to have Katie tell us what design thinking really is. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, my dog has decided to come into my room. So if he makes an appearance behind me, just know it's, it's my <laughs> large dog and not anything else. Um, so design thinking is a process used to design and understand a body of knowledge. It's a problem solving approach um, that's used to improve processes, which could be services or product design. Um, take, for example, Netflix. When Netflix first started, you could go online, pick out whatever DVDs you wanted. They'd get delivered to your mailbox and, and then you'd watch them return them. With time, they, Netflix, utilized design thinking to try to get ahead of the curb, so to speak to try to stay up to date with what their customers wanted. So they cut out the DVD deliveries and they went full streaming, um, which now we have just countless streaming platforms that have you know kind of been molded off of that same um, platform. So they cut out the inconvenience of having to wait for the mail to bring your DVDs and they focused on what their customers really were looking for and what they wanted, which was utilizing design thinking. Um, I'm sorry, it's utilizing design thinking, but it's also utilizing human-centered design, meaning they put their customers at the center of what they were trying to do. So human-centered design focuses on the fact that everything from the pencils that we're using, the computers that we're, that we're using to record this, the devices you're listening to, has been designed um, with specific intent. Um, we are designing this podcast in a way that hopefully intrigues and engages you all as listeners, um, and designing for humans seems like common sense, but you would be very surprised with how many times products and experiences are not at all centered around human needs. So, um, Don Norman goes into a lot. He will be referenced, as we said, throughout our podcast series. Um, and especially content from the design of everyday things because it focuses a lot on that human-centered design aspect of it. 
So designers and design think, uh, thinking or thinkers have a toolbox that help us to problem solve. These tools are often activities that engage the problem um, stakeholders. So if you have a problem with, uh, like with Netflix, they probably talk to their, their clientele, they probably talk to their delivery people. How is this all going to affect their change from going from a mail service to an online service? And that's what designers and design thinkers do, is that we look at those problems and then try to figure out, well, how are we going to solve it? So we need to talk with other people. We don't do this in isolation. We do this as a collective. And there are a lot of different options to help us to do that work. So here at Radford, we've been using the Luma Institute Book of Innovating for People Handbook uh, of Human-Centered Design Methods. Yeah. And Katie's showing it. Mine is digital, so I can't show it to you. Here it is in my computer. Yep. <laughs> Um, so LUMA stands for Looking, Understanding, Making Activities, L-U-M-A, okay? It makes it really easy to remember. This is one of the first books we all purchased for our studio courses and have used it constantly since. Mm -hmm. The LUMA Institute provides professional design thinkers with tools to organize interactions with clients, students, coworkers, or whoever you're interacting with. So it might be stakeholders or even just people who um, are interested in helping you out. Each section of the book provides activities for the professional to define, empathize, ideate, test, and then prototype the stages of design thinking. So they work in collection with each other and they're designed that way. You can purchase a Luma workbook, both digitally and paper. I have my digital one. Mm -hmm. Megan and Katie have their rather well-worn yes <laughs> i have the i have the note cards too i should have brought Ooh. them oh yeah i brought the note cards so luma i mean luma's got a good way to get all my money for one <laughs> but because <laughs> I, I also su subscribe to their workplace on their website oh, yeah a lot of they have a lot of great tools i'm not trying to be like a, a sponsor for luma unless they want me to yeah <laughs> 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 but um, Luma has, yeah, like like Nancy said, Luma's got a lot of different solutions and a lot of different ways to um, use their tools to find yeah. solutions too. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And yeah. if you if you do anything in the design thinking world, I know that all of us, Nancy included, because she probably has her computer everywhere. This book is never very far from me. Whenever I'm doing anything school related in this program, that is not far away. Um, because it's so, it's just chock full of information. So it's really neat. Yeah. My Kindle but, always says that I haven't finished the book yet. <laughs> yeah, sure you haven't. I don't I believe just, Kindle. I'm always at 10%, but it's 10% of something else. So if you, if you haven't grabbed the book, we really encourage you to do so. And we're going to put the link to, uh, Luma and information about all the books that we talk about or any people that we talk about in the YouTube channel below. So have a look at that. And just as, it, as your information, Luma is only one type of toolkits that are out there uh, when using design thinking. So there's a lot of different toolkits out there and it just happens that we've been using the Luma one uh, through our studies. So as you listen and watch the series and you know of other systems, we would really love to hear about what you have in the comments below, because it's all about learning. And that's, you know, 
we're all educators here and we're all students here and that's a big part of what we're what we're trying to do with this podcast as well so um let's move on now to fast and slow thinking mm -hmm. so kahneman's book focuses on how humans think categorizing them as fast system one or slow system two as megan mentioned earlier fast thinking System one operates automatically and quickly uh, with little or no effort and no sense of voluntary control. So it's very impulsive and intuitive. Um, I do not do a lot of fast thinking. I just happen to think all the time, which is sometimes unfortunate. However, when we start to look at fast thinking as being that automatic thinking, I would say as a drafts person, that's when I start to get into automatic thinking, when I'm doing drafting and when I'm doing artwork. I spent half of my career, <clears throat> sorry for the voice, as a drafts person and primarily working on the software AutoCAD. So when using AutoCAD, um, I know how to achieve the end goal. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just sort of moving my fingers and mouse and finding the right commands and it just happens. Um, but if I'm not in front of the computer, don't ask me how I do this because it just happens. I don't think about it. <clears throat> so when I started teaching uh, teaching AutoCAD, um, Kahneman talks about something called flow. And that's what started to happen for me was that there was an energy that occurred when I started to teach AutoCAD. And it just was this robot of information that was coming out of me into the students, um, showing them how to do the activities. It was just this automatic happening and it actually energized me. Um, <clears throat> wouldn't have, well, I could probably already knew that it was going to energize me, but it was mm -hmm. unconscious thinking. I understood the application's language. So communication was quicker to the application and it made it a lot easier for me to actually tell the students that I was working with what was happening and what the relationship with the language of the software to the outcome of the application. <clears throat> so, uh, Nancy, when you teach it, do you steal the uh, mouse from them um, and, you, you know, just show them? <laughs> no, I, no, I, I do this. I do the scarier thing and I look over their shoulder and I tell them what they've done wrong before they even tell me what the problem is. <laughs> so that's even scarier. <laughs> I, I can do that sometimes when I know what they're on. And they go, oh, I have a question on. And I'm like, it's this. Yeah. Everybody asked me, it's this. I can tell you how to do it from my desk. I don't have to come over there. So I steal the mouse a lot. I have, um, and I think that's part of that, um, that flow state you get in when you've got this, you know, subconscious um, action that you're taking. You, you yep. just, I know how to do it. And sometimes I just need to show you instead of verbalizing. And that can be really difficult too. I think that that's part of, you know, that, that system one just constant, just wants to take over. Mm -hmm. And as a teacher, when you're trying to teach applications like that, it it's, can be really hard to step back um, and verbalize the steps and um, let your system two kind of take control. Yeah, definitely. It, it becomes a challenge because also, um, especially with AutoCAD or a lot of softwares, is that you're actually teaching them a language. Mm -hmm. And that language is so yes. incredibly foreign that the students are like, what are you talking about? You know, like it's, it's, you know, it's even like doing hand drawing too, or painting that it is something that we do almost intuitively as a child. But when we get to an older age or we get into a more um, 
systematic process of doing the act, there's a new language that's happening that we sort of learn intuitively almost. Like I find both with drafting, because I've been doing it my entire life, and artwork is that I do a lot of things intuitively and I don't know what I'm doing. And so mm -hmm. when you're trying to explain that to somebody else, you have to do that slowing, slow down thinking to break down what's happening so that you can explain it to, to somebody else. So when I'm looking at doing my artwork, I have that same type of flow when I'm mixing colors. <clears throat> I had taken a color theory course about six years ago and that learning about what the language is. So taking that intuitive that I knew and then adding a new language to it basically allowed um, a better understanding of what was happening. And I actually find that with the design thinking courses that we're taking too, that I started to be able to understand what was happening with, with those colors. And so when I'm mixing colors now, I know why I'm adding the yellow to the white or why I'm adding um, the green to the blue and what is going to happen with it. So I've got my colors. I know how to mix them and what color I'm going to get from them, both acrylics and watercolors. It just happens naturally. So with Kahneman, he would say that I'm working with my intuition. It's that stored memory that I have of the information that provides me the abilities to mix the colors or to know where to you know, do the, the drawings in AutoCAD. Um, there's a sense of flow and it's not, there's almost no control over it, you know, and, and you have, you just sort of let it go. And, it, and it's a really interesting process when you know what's happening. And that's what I really found with reading about Kahneman <clears throat> was he put the language in and what was actually happening when I was doing AutoCAD or working with color. So Megan, can you tell us a little bit more about what's uh, happening with um, uh, that system? We're talking about system one, right? Yeah, system one thinking. <laughs> yeah, but I'll touch real fast on what you said about language in here. Yeah. Um, that AutoCAD, you know, that program has its own language and even, you know, the mixing of paint is its own language. And um, we actually get, my students actually get a um, foreign language credit for my class. <laughs> because we are learning a language. And that's career and technical education. Most programs get a foreign language credit because it's, it's, a, it's, it's yeah. cultural. It's, there's a culture in my, of language in my classroom that not everybody understands. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that happens in our workplaces too. Our workplaces have their own culture. So they have their own language. And when we have to, when we come across a culture that is different from our own, that makes system two has to kick in. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're working in our own culture, our own language, is, I guess what I'm trying to say is that's when we're really, our system one is going. Yeah. Um, and then our system two will come in when we're, we're kind of running into a wall of maybe a group that we're not as familiar with. So wanted to touch on that. Yeah, that's um, a good point. That's so, really interesting too. I like that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah no, it, it is. And it, when I first started, I, I was like, really? Foreign language? But it, the more I got going, the more it made sense. I it mean, seems. like a lot of the, so many of the different programs, you know, we, we've got mechanical drafting and yeah. um, automotive. They all have their own, they all have their own language that not Very everybody understands. So. Yeah. That's yeah. really great. Yeah. So um, a little bit more on, I think, natural mapping. Um, natural mapping is 
how system one understands, you know, the color, the color of, um, you know, th that Nancy's using when she's mixing color, her colors. She, she doesn't have to measure precise, precisely how much color she's using because her system one just, just knows, knows how to mix it, knows how it's going to get there. Um, and you know, that's, that's how it can make the perfect shade of green for your Canadian trees up there. <laughs> There's my cheesy line. Um, <laughs> so, so that's something I kind of want to uh, touch base with. Okay. So that cheesy lines here for a purpose. So, um, Nancy's in Canada, I'm in Michigan, Katie's in Tennessee. But what if I was from Antarctica and I'd never seen a pine tree before, um, which is kind of extreme. I don't think anyone's from Antarctica, um, but I didn't do research on that. So just, just roll with me, okay? <laughs> So what I'm trying to say is our culture impacts the natural mapping that system one creates. Um, and, and that's kind of what we're, I was trying, we were touching on earlier. We come to rely on these natural maps and we'll learn in a few minutes that system two does the, the real hard work but wants to take shortcuts whenever it can. And we don't work smarter, not harder kind of concept. So it would rather have these maps um, to rely on um, or, or rely on signifiers to kind of solve a problem. And that's the first big flaw of system one is reliance because it relies on maps. It relies on biases. It relies on a lot of different things that can lead us down the wrong, wrong, wrong road. <laughs> um, <laughs> So as designers, we, we hope to avoid any potential confusion by incorporating signifiers into our work. And a signifier is pretty much just as simple as it sounds. And it's, it's something that is covered in, um, by Don Norman quite a bit in his um, Design of Everyday Things as well. Um, but it's just a way to signal the identification of a task. Uh, sometimes it's real obvious, like a picture of a deer on a caution sign. Um, if you're rural, that'll make sense. If you're not from the country, that might not make sense, but we do have signs for deer. Um, and moose. And moose. moose. I don't have a moose one. I, we I have moose ones. have moose ones. Nice. And, and the sign was actually just redesigned for the Oh, really? Oh. Well. Wow. Fancy. We, have, we probably have elk. We do have some elk up north, but yeah, definitely no moose. That would scare me if I saw one. You, Those yeah, you go a little bit further south from me and you'll start seeing ones with alligators on them yeah <laughs> i don't want to say that <laughs> so you know yeah we, we cover the gamut sides of wild <laughs> yeah. animal signs except for the kangaroos <laughs> oh yeah yeah all right so we, we might have the signs the alligator signs which i hope we don't i i hope to not see um <laughs> but we might take maybe a more subtle approach it's not a specific sign and maybe we're just placing a trash can by the door hoping that that signifies for people to throw their trash away as they walk out now if you're a teacher that at least as you know high school students it doesn't really happen you know they, they, <laughs> they, they don't, they don't <laughs> um, but I hope they make the connection but either way we're communicating an action in in what we hope is a universal way in relying on system one to understand that natural mapping so here's how we overlap design concepts with psychology concepts. So Norman does a really excellent job of breaking down signifiers, as I said earlier, and it allowed for us when we were going through it um, to really start making connections to system one and how system one works. But what happens when you encounter a situation where your map doesn't fit 
you know, how does your brain react? And if we can't call a system two, then we're going to allow for mistakes and errors to happen. And we don't want to put our clients through those things. So I have a really good example that that kind of breaks it down into kind of the most basic explanation of how system one and system two work. When I was a classroom teacher, I do a lot of art education in the community. And um, but when I was in the classroom, I used this game called ASAP. And basically it looks it looks like this when you when you get it out. It has two stacks of cards. The first stack has every letter of the alphabet, one letter on each card. And the second stack has different categories. And the point of the game, it could be as many people as can get around this deck of cards. You flip the cards over at the same time. And the first person who can react and say a sport that starts with B, which of course this one's pretty simple, but some of them are not as easy as this. So the first person to blurt out a sport that starts with a B gets that title card and then, you know, the game moves on. Whoever has the amount of the largest amount of, of cards at the end wins. But what's funny about this is sometimes you get, of course, there's Q's and there's X's and there's all these other hard letters and that match up with um, presidents or I'm trying to think a candy bar that starts with X. Well, when those cards start flipping, depending on the age of the students, people, even adults, people start, they want to be the first ones. And so they will blurt out. I mean, think of this one, sports and B. Sometimes people will yell out banana just because that is the first thing that comes to their mind. And it's a B word and you're trying to move fast. And so that's system one. But then when you have something harder, then system two kind of has to come into play. Um, and, you know, kind of really think about while well, you're still rushing, but whatever. So this is a great game. I've used it so many times and it's fun to play no matter what age you are. I promise you adults would like this game too, because it's just fun. It's just fun. So, so with that, then system two. So system two is, is really considered the slow thinking headquarters of the brain um, it's a lot of times referred to as the lazy system, but we don't really like to use that term a whole lot because it's not lazy at all. It is the one that has to be kind of called into action, um, but it's in charge of reasoning. It's in charge of, um, you know, just more in-depth thoughts, effortful reflecting, decision-making, things like that. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, these two systems work into work together in your brain. You have one that's ready to jump into action. And then you have system two. That's like, all right, I'm not going to come until I'm called. So um, that was where the, that term of it being the lazy system comes into play. But like we said, it's not lazy at all. Um, you know, it's in charge of so much, um, so we don't want to discount its importance. Um, it's the manager of self-control for sure. It's, um, and you know, when system one jumps to conclusions about something really important, system two is the one it's kind of like, think about it as like your conscience and your, your, um, it's the one to say, okay, whoa, let's slow down. Let's take a step back. Is this the best thing to do? 
you know, so it's it's definitely in charge of impulse control for sure. Yeah, so I actually live in slow thinking. Um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was about seven years old, so I've lived with it my entire life. And spelling and writing are a real challenge for me. Uh, yet that's all that I've been doing with my graduate studies and as an educator for the past 18 years. I just write everything. But with dyslexia, I don't hear small nuances with uh, words. So I can't translate those sounds into how it's spelled. So if a word starts with a F or a PH, or if it's an SC or K sound, I don't know like it just doesn't resonate with me whatsoever um so i need to think about every letter i type i repeat in my head and sometimes i even sound out the word to figure out how uh, the letters might be arranged and use grammarly and spell check and one of the best things in my life was when autocad had spell check um but it's it's this part of substitution of breaking down the elements into smaller sections, both to help me to remember how to spell words, and I still don't remember how to spell some words, but also to help me to find the solution. So I slow down, I break things down, I, I try to find the solutions when I'm spelling words. So even if I'm drafting an email, uh, to, even to my students, it might take me half an hour to write an email because I'm rearranging the words to make sure that it has the correct meaning and also to make sure that I'm telling the right story to the person, that there isn't any spelling mistakes in it because I'm expecting my students to do the same to me. So, you know, we're trying to elevate my, my college students to a professional level, mm -hmm. which means not texting, but writing proper emails, slowing down, making sure you know what you're saying and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm getting better at this with my graduate studies. However, it still requires me to stop, think, consider, edit, rewrite. Like I said, check with Grammarly again and again and again. Uh, spell check before I hit send, when I do remember to hit send. So, uh, <laughs> I forgot to hit send today. Uh, I have uh, excellent marks with my written projects in graduate school, but that was not the case in undergraduate. Uh, I work hard, ridiculously hard on my writing. Uh, I married my editor too, so that even helps me even better. Um, even with this podcast script, you know, I had to look, what am I saying? How am I writing the words? Does it make sense? And we all work together to make sure that everything had a flow to it as we're moving through it. So living with dyslexia, I often self-reinforce that I can't spell, okay? Kahneman calls this the availability cas cascade. Uh, I always have a challenge with spelling because of my dyslexia. Because of the dyslexia, I can't spell. So I'm just reinforcing myself over and over again. My spelling challenges then are, were reinforced when I was younger by teachers and classmates saying things like, well, you're stupid. Why can't you know how to spell those words? I'm a little bit older than Megan and Katie. So it was a very different um, environment where I grew up in, um, the, in schools, especially elementary school in the 70s. Um, so 
ah, you know, they're telling me that you did it wrong. And yet I had no idea what I did wrong. I couldn't figure it out because my brain was wired a, a little bit differently. So this ended up equated being called stupid when I was younger. Now, because I understand what's happening in my brain with fast and slow thinking, but also with having a better understanding of what the dyslexia is doing, I can now slow down and question what is true. Am I actually stupid or is it just breaking, you know, sort of changing my mindset and breaking that availability cascade? Fast thinking is not an option for me when I'm uh, writing. I have to, I've learned that I'm good at writing, but it takes me time and I need to have patience on myself. So I have to slow down. However, when I'm dealing with color or AutoCAD, it's like breathing to me. I don't, I don't think about it at all. And that's the biggest difference between that fast and slow thinking. Yeah. And, and that's really um, good, good point too. When you say that, um, you know, like, like the AutoCAD is, you don't have to think about it. Yeah. It just, it just flows. And it's nice in our work days to have things where that happens, where I don't have to put as much energy into this because I've got my system one working on it. And then later on, okay, now I do need system two to kick in. Um, we need balance. So we're not saying that you should never use one um, or you should never use two. We need to use them both. Um, and that's how we really create a balanced day. Um, and I wanted to touch on Grammarly because Grammarly, uh, I haven't really used until recently, even though it's been around for a little bit, but it is really great because it frees up space in your brain so that you can do critical thinking um, that, that, you know, Grammarly's not do. Grammarly's helping you with your, your spelling and your grammar and your precision and whatnot, but it's not able to critically think for you. Um, and I, AI seems to be popping up like crazy right now especially for writing programs mm -hmm. and i've looked at a couple of them um, um, i actually looked at one with a student because we were joking around about about something um so we were playing around with you know inputting a few things and seeing what it would write and it was it was all fun and games but it, ai programs can't critically think um they can only take information and um, um you know summarize it and merge it they're not able to do the critical thinking skills and the solving of the real wicked problems that we have so as we mentioned earlier human-centered design and design thinking um, often go hand in hand um, human-centered design focuses on people who are going to be using the product or um, service being offered and i th i don't think we touched on this earlier when we say product we're not just meaning a physical product like um, like my pen. We're also meaning the production of um, a presentation, a, a podcast like this. All of those things are products. Um, so when we have human-centered design, um, they're, we're focusing on um, what is it they, they really need? Like, what is the actual problem? Because sometimes the problem's not presented or the problem they're presenting they think is the problem, but it's not really it. Mm -hmm. It made sense from all that that I just kind of said. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we're we're not going to get into human-centered design on this episode too much. We're going to dive into it next podcast because we we already think we gave you a lot of information. Yeah, and and everybody, all of these things that we're talking about, you know, keep in mind that this is this is podcast number one. So um, we have so much more so much more to to say and share and if there's anything in particular any specific um questions or or anything 
um, and I think Nancy mentioned this, but but comment on on this and let us know if there's a specific topic because we're happy to uh, to uh, do whatever you guys want to hear it as well. But the the gist of this is is that it doesn't matter what you do. You could be a small business owner, you could be an educator, you could be a nurse, you could be a student. Um, product design affects your life. It 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 is everywhere. It is literally everywhere you look. It, from the clothes on your back to the device you're listening to this on. Um, and with the use of design thinking methods um, and thinking in general, we can improve the way that we see the world and help those around us to solve problems that are faced in the workplace, in life in general. So throughout this series, we're gonna be touching on various aspects of the process of thinking, how our brains work to make sense of the world around us, design thinking, human-centered design. And each episode's gonna dive deeper into some of the most important and interesting um, aspects of this fast and slow thinking. So that's why we wanted to kind of really do a deep dive on this today and in this episode, so that you get a better understanding of what fast and slow thinking are. Um, and so be sure to hit the subscribe button and um, don't miss the next episode coming soon. It's going to be coming your way in a few weeks. And we're going to be talking about human-centered design in that one. So thanks for joining. Thank you. Thanks. Bradford University is in Bradford, Virginia, USA, but is accessible worldwide with online programs such as the Design Thinking MFA. If you're interested in learning more about our program, please check out www.radford.edu for more information.